It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Mance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. My name is Austin Peterson. My co-host on this program is Landon Mance. And if today happens to be the first time you've listened to our program, Tycoons of Small Biz is a program that highlights small businesses and nonprofits throughout our country who we believe are truly the backbone of our economy. And so we take an opportunity once a week to highlight one of those businesses or one of those nonprofits and let them tell their story and and get it out there any way that we can. So with that being said, today is National Volunteer Day. My wife informed me of that this morning. She happens to be one of the guests on today's program. So uh, I can tell you that this is episode 50. And before the program even starts, my favorite guest ever to be on this program is Robin Peterson with Their Story Is Our Story. And she's also joined by Sherry Ann Scow with Their Story is Our Story. Welcome to the program, ladies. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So typically, before we jump into talking about the nonprofit or the business, we we have our guests tell a little bit about themselves personally. So we'll start with Robin and let you uh, tell us a little bit about your wonderful husband of 23 (laughs) years and and how much uh, fun he's brought to your life throughout those 23 years. Well, as he just said, we have been married for 23 years. We've got two amazing kids. One just turned 21, our son, and he is at ASU uh, Cronkite Journalism School. And our daughter, Ella, will be graduating this year and headed up to school in the fall. I, myself, professionally and uh, with schooling, I have a degree in history, and I've always been very, very just drawn to to studying history, studying people, um, and I've built a, a professional genealogy business um, doing so as well. I'm just happy to be on here. My other love and passion is volunteerism. I, I, I'm not tooting any horns or anything. I'm just, I'm trying to, that, that's where I'd love to, to spend quite a bit of my time, as much of my time as I can, since, especially since our kids are pretty grown. Great. Happy to be here. Yeah. Excited to have you on the program. So tell us, how did you get connected first of all with their story is our story and what uh, prompted you to, to be involved? Well, actually I was volunteering with um, another refugee organization in the Phoenix area that they help resettle the refugees that have gone through the vetting process they arrive here in the States, they help set up apartments for the refugees um, because the refugees themselves are provided with a certain allotment of money. And then they have to, they pay back every dime from the plane ride all the way up to, you know, fork, knife, spoon, every, they, they pay everything back. So this organization gathering humanity, they, they decided to kind of bridge that gap and provide, provide, care for these for these people so I was volunteering one day and I was speaking with one of the directors and just said I there's I feel like there's more that I I can do I feel like 
I'm helping physically, but I feel like I, I, I want to be more connected to these people. I want to hear more about them. I want to hear more of their stories. And she, we were standing kind of by their break area when they have a fridge. And up above that fridge was a book called Let Me Tell You My Story, which was produced by Their Story Is Our Story. And she said, you need to get connected with this organization. They are doing phenomenal work throughout the world. They're interviewing people. They're they're connecting with people and hearing people's stories. So I emailed on the volunteer list and I kind of put out my, my specialties and, and working with history and archival work and whatnot. And they said, we need you. <laughs> and I am so grateful that I kind of literally stumbled into them. Awesome. Well, Sherry Ann, it's, it's your turn to tell your story and uh, you know, all about your not quite so stellar, but still stellar husband. <laughs> my stellar husband is, is um, he's wonderful. He really puts up with a lot of my, uh, my projects. I, I've been a project girl since I was about three and uh, it has not stopped. So you have to find the right person that can handle all of your projects. I will say that um, just to go back to what Robin was saying, I remember when Robin came on. In fact, it was we had had this idea of an archive and we just didn't have the bandwidth or the professionalism for that. And Robin's name came up and um, it was so important that even though Robin had only been with us for a couple of weeks, we said she has to be on the next story gathering trip. We have to have her there. From the moment I met Robin, I think she offered me some who chocolate bites or something like that. And we have been best friends ever since. Like I have always known that Robin was supposed to be in my life and in this project with me because we just share so much of the same um, love for people, love for stories the imp- and understand the importance of stories. My education background is in, um, it's in writing and it's in language acquisition. I taught school in Luxembourg when I was um, just a sophomore in college and had my first interchange with with, the refu- with refugees. They became my friends. They taught at the same language school that I was teaching at. Ever since then, and I didn't even actually know that they were refugees back. I didn't understand uh, that that word. I understood the word, but I didn't, I didn't think I was actually, that's why I was interchanging with refugees. Um, they were just friends from different countries who had been forcibly displaced from their homes, and they had uh, incredible stories. And throughout my life, um, I have a constellation of of spots where I get connected with more people who've been displaced from their homes. And so this, I got a cold call at some point from Melissa Dalton Bradford and said, you know, we've seen you with another organization that you've created. How would you feel about coming on and helping us with their stories, our story? And we're just here all the time now, ever since then, that's what we do. We <laughs> we're working all working together and, and it's the same thing. I think Robin understands the minute you kind of get swept in, you're you're in on the track, constantly running. So yeah, well, I can attest to to that as well, being the guy who lives in the same house as her. So <laughs> I, I've seen it and lived it myself. So given the fact that three of us on the call speak French, I mean, there's an easy way to exclude. Landon from the rest of the interview. <laughs> what do you think, Landon? Yeah, well, uh, something I'm holding in my back pocket here 
you're, you're going to wish that she didn't speak English, you know, your wife, when I, when I dropped this bomb. So, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not ready for that yet. I'm getting there. I got to wait for the right moment. Uh, I'm sure we will get there. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing it has something to do with pardon my French, but that, uh, I'm sure that one's coming. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about, about refugees in general. So, I mean, you guys are both affiliated with this program. I think that, or excuse me, with this nonprofit, but I think that what happens in our country is there's a gross misunderstanding of what refugees are or who refugees are who asylum seekers are, the difference, and then basically the way that people are viewed as refugees or asylum seekers, unfortunately in our country, is viewed through this political lens of, I believe that the borders should be open or they shouldn't be open, or I want some people coming in, I want other people not coming in. And so I think you guys kind of get caught in the middle of this. And so Maybe just tell us a little bit about how the program came about and, and describe what a refugee is, what an asylum seeker is, and why they are important to our society in the U.S. So, Austin, it's interesting. Um, refugees were defined back after World War II, basically. Um, there was a U.N. definition that was created based on the experience, um, and this is Robin's whole focus of, of study on um, Jews who had been persecuted during the Holocaust. So the UN created this definition and it was very um, focused on this group of people. They it, it did talk about people who had been displaced from their homes because of their creed, their nationality, their, their race, and it stopped there. And that was a place, um, that definition determined um, resource allotment, it determined um, placement in, in, in countries. But that's, you know, 60, 70 years ago that we're talking about that definition being created. Since then, other conflicts have come up that have lent themselves to the same exact situation. For example, asylum seekers. So a refugee who is fleeing their home because they've been forced to flee their home for you know, the religion, their creed, their race, any of those things, that's somebody who's gone and they're actually in a camp and they've been vetted for a little while, but it's the exact same reason why somebody would flee their home, get to a border, and there's no refugee camp there, so they claim asylum. And by all international laws, the way you claim asylum is the same way you would claim, you know, ask for refugee status, is that you present yourself at the border and say, I have a reasonable, credible fear, and I am I'm asking for asylum. And so then you go through the same process, but it's within the country. And it's the same exact years-long vetting process. It, it takes forever. It requires courts after courts after courts. So there's, and, and it's not just asylum seekers, Austin. There's also, we have internally displaced people. Think of like um, a well situated in Somalia, for example. It's a water well for a village. And maybe there's a warlord that comes in and takes over that well, takes that well hostage. So there's no water for those people. They may travel and go and be forced from their homes, but never cross a political border but they're also in the same situation. And then we've got like the whole situation of Myanmar right now and Rohingya refugees who have lived in Myanmar for centuries, 
but because of an internal dispute with with the with the the government there who has just dug their heels in and said we will never recognize you as our people when they start chasing them out of the country they have no passports they have no identity so they're called stateless people so these four groups of people all flee for the same reason and for that reason their story is our story we define a refugee differently than what i said at the beginning from the un we define a refugee as anyone who is forced to flee their home in order to survive. Hey, Sherian, gotcha. can yeah. you explain to us what uh, asylum actually means so that we just kind of have an understanding as we progress in this conversation? Sure. So asylum is protection. Asylum is, um, you know, uh, it, it it is essentially protection. I mean, that's the definition of the word. Legally, what it means is that somebody is um, fleeing for whatever reason that is, and it's the same thing I just said, fleeing in order to survive. It could be asylum from a gang that's taken over their village. It could be asylum from um, a government that's seeking to destroy them for, you know, producing stories in a newspaper they didn't like. It could be asylum from it can be asylum from anything that threatens your body or family. But you have to, at the border, if you present yourself for asylum, you can't just say, I seek asylum. You have to have documentation. You have to have letters from the province where that abuse perhaps happened. You have to have witnesses. It, it's not just um, based on stories. You have doctor's visits. You have it's, There's a lot that goes into legally claiming asylum. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah, thank you. An asylum seeker does not receive the same sort resources that a refugee does, though. So where there might be some resources, like Robin was talking about, like setting up an apartment for a refugee, none of those resources exist for asylum seekers. And and for for people that are seeking asylum, countries where the the, the resources may be significantly you know uh, more limited maybe than the United States what is that what does that look like for somebody that's trying to get protection from one of those events maybe that you just described but maybe there just really isn't any protection for them I mean how, how do you how do you deal with that um, so, so that looks different in every country. So we, uh, the, their story is our story. We've been to Cox Bazaar, which is the Rohingya people. I was talking about the stateless people. That is one of the largest refugee camps in the world. It's on a mud-covered plain. And in your best moment, it's dirt, dirt ground, and people can walk around. And during the monsoon season, it's a mud pit with, with mudslides where the tents go down. And, and you, you've seen now twice in the news in the last six months, two devastating fires. One was in Cox Bazaar and one was at Maria Camp in Greece. That camp in Greece it, at, on the Isle of Lesbos looks a lot like Cox Bazaar. However, it, it's a little more organized and, um, but, but still kind of really rough living conditions. Um, usually food. You know, usually there's a minimal amount of food. If you're lucky, you've got a UN-sponsored tent. If you're not lucky, you have a tarp. Or you could be in Jordan. And in Jordan has been one of the most welcoming countries to refugees. And um, they actually incorporate refugees within. They, they recognize the value of refugees to their economy. 
And so they welcome them and they integrate them within the cities. And so it is, uh, you, you could feel like it's a little more impoverished, but those refugees actually contribute to their economy. They live in more um, reasonable housing. They still are tents, but you know, if you're wanting to know what that looks like, it will vary country to country based on the resources they're able to, to get for them. Yeah, so let, let's actually, well, first, Cox Bazaar, tell us what country that's in. So Cox Bazaar is in Bangladesh, but it services the Rohingya people from Myanmar. So let's talk a little bit more about the economic benefit, right? I mean, you mentioned Jordan and them being very open and accepting of refugees and, and understand that there's a positive economic benefit. So I would tend to say, and it probably goes right down political lines, but in our country, many people believe that refugees are a drag on our economy. So let's let's address what the reality is and, and what, uh, what you've seen personally with that. So, um, yeah, if you go to our website, if you go to tsosrefugees.org uh, and you go under community programs, um, you'll see that we have about 20 community programs globally. You know, there's, uh, there's 20 in the US and there's a few more in Europe and one in Africa, one in South America. And we have infographics on the side of each one of those pages that will show the contributions that come in as refugees come into their communities. And that includes asylum seekers. What we found, and, and I think that there's a lot of myth busting that needs to take place in these, in these situations, but what you normally see is um, people believing that refugees come in and they live off the quote unquote system for long periods of time, which just isn't true. The refugees are allotted three months of living, which is at a very, very base level. And out of that three months of living, like Robin said, they have to pay back a plane ticket. They have to pay, Robin, why don't you tell them what happens when they get to, when they get, um, what, what, what is involved and what they have to pay for with that small amount of money they get? Well, when they're in wherever they are throughout the world in their refugee camp, they have to apply and apply and apply. And some refugees are within, they live in a refugee camp for 20, 30 plus years. I mean, they're raising their families in these camps all the while trying to get, sometimes they they have a choice. If they've got a family member or a sponsor in a specific country, then they're allowed, you know, then they, through all this vetting process, they're allowed to come over. They're given that three month, they're, they're, housing is paid for, their flight is paid for, like we spoke of before, um, but they do, they have to pay that back. They're required to pay that back. All services essentially stop at three months and they're, they're assigned once, so say they're coming to the U.S. and I'm just familiar with the Phoenix-based organizations, so I'll just speak to that, but they're assigned a caseworker who then works with different organizations to find them housing, and the housing is I mean, uh, Austin, he's come to help set up some apartments as well. And they are not grand hotels. They are bare, bare, they are not dirt floors like, like Sherry Ann was talking about, but they are very, very low income, basic houses. They are given this allotment and that's why organizations like Gathering Humanity or other ones step in because they, with the money that they have, they are supposed to then learn English, get a job, 
and do all of these things, get their children signed up for school, get, get established as if you were, any one of us were to move to a different city, but they also have to learn how to navigate. Some of them are coming from villages where they don't, they've never seen a stoplight. They've never, they don't know how to get, go to the doctor or the pharmacy or, you know, they have, they're all of these things. So gaps are being filled by various organizations like Gathering Humanity, Setting Up Food. There's another one that I work with called the Somali Center. They teach classes, English and cooking and citizenship, all those types of things, root people on. They, through their caseworker, they, they are helped to find a job and they're, so vast majority work at airports or hotels or warehouses. And so during COVID in the Phoenix area alone, 90% of them were out of work, obviously no fault of their own. So it's, it's not sunshine and roses as many might think once you land here. There is a lot of work and hustle that has to go into it. And refugees are some of the most hardworking people that I've ever met because of that, because they know they finally, quote unquote, made it to somewhere safe. And now they really have to just to, to run with it, to, to make a life. You know, one of the one of the um, myths that we try and bust too is we, there's often this misconception that refugees coming here come with no skills, and that is so not true. They're usually educated. They have training. There are some who don't, but like Robin said, there are some of the hardest working people, and they compensate for that. Um, statistics every year show that refugees um, and and immigrants coming into our country far, far repay any benefits that they receive as they come here. So for example, we've got people coming in and as Robin said, during COVID, yes, there was some unemployment, but the people who, who served mostly as essential workers, those people that would work in nursing homes or at the Amazon warehouse or at Walmarts or in those COVID lines, so many of them happen to be these refugees ready to work and they come with contributions of their own. They're innovative. They think outside of the box that we've never even considered a box. There. They, they come up with ideas that we are not going to think about in conventional terms, and they're brilliant. They, are, um, they come with new languages, and they pay taxes. They pay into our social security system. They, you know, they, there's a, there is a, um, there is a statistic that they have paid over $31 billion in taxes each year, and, and so much of that going to Social Security. So they also are, this, this is that innovative spirit that I was talking about, they are such entrepreneurs. And so rather than this myth that they take jobs, Oftentimes, they are starting their own businesses and providing jobs. They're job creators, and they come up with new products. And, and they also, with all that they earn, they have a spending capacity that also goes back into the economy. We see this a lot. For example, if you look at the business Chobani or Cotopaxi, you see business owners who have created, the owner of Chobani is a refugee. And um, in the Twin Falls, Idaho area, he created this large yogurt company and he employs refugees to come in and work for them. One of our, um, our community program coordinators, her name's Ann Richmond, she lives in Idaho. 
she spent months and months with the people, the refugees coming to work at the Chobani plant and learning all about them. She created an entire book where she would just go into their kitchens and cook with them. And, and this is kind of, um, I'm just going to merge the business part with the personal part. But, you know, th there are statistics, there are stories of numbers, but they never outweigh the story, the personal stories. So where Anne would go in and sit in a kitchen with somebody, somebody else's kitchen for hours, and that person would teach her how to cook. And while they did it, they'd tell her story. There was a trust and a love built there. And those people trust Anne. Anne loves them and trusts them. And suddenly you have a societal dividend that goes beyond the economics, right? Like we have this little investment we make in people. We teach them English. We get them involved in school. We hopefully get them into good housing or, we, or, or a job. And they start off on their American dream. That little investment that we make in somebody, a newcomer's life, it builds exponentially into a societal dividend that turns into patriotism. Um, it turns into um, just a grit and determination, a giving back to their community. I can tell you a story about Marta who came from Honduras. She was a little girl who lived in Honduras and during a hurricane there, there was such a disaster that the U.S. sent some, um, I, they, they call them TPS, they're the, I don't even know what that stands for, but they come down during disasters and they help out. And Marta saw the military and she thought in her mind, someday I want to be a hero like them. They were like superheroes to her. Well, when she was a young teenager, she found herself fleeing danger. She was looking for security. She had a three-year-old daughter and she was seven months pregnant. And imagine, just imagine, I'm sorry, men, just try and imagine being pregnant and hauling a baby, a child, across that tip of Mexico all the way up to the border with this dream, knowing that there were superheroes that lived on the other side of that border. And you wanted to be a part of that because that was the safe place. Those are the people that made you feel secure at some point. Marta crossed that border. She she decided that that's what she would do. She joined the military. She served several tours in Iraq. She came back. She has raised these two children to be utter stellar people who now give back to their society. And she now bridges with the people who come across and helps them. So, so you look at this and you think, wow, do we get a better citizen than that? That, that came from a modicum of investment in MARTA. And now we've got this phenomenal person that you know, I feel proud to call an American citizen next to me. So, so that it, there is economics, but then there's this societal dividend of what happens when we make these bridges and these connections. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, <clears throat> you know, I've known many people that have become citizens at some point, you know, after immigrating to the United States. And, you know, Robin and I have had this conversation before where it, it's crazy, like, not one of us could pass the citizenship test that these people are asked to pass. Not one of us, right? And so, you know, the commitment that they make to be a part of our society and to integrate and to do the, the you know, the things that are really important uh, in our society is just phenomenal to watch. So I'm going to turn to Robin and just say, you know, to tell us why you think telling the story is the way to get the message out. 
Well, we've been talking a lot about statistics and you know, economic impact and things like that. But when I was first brought on, um, one of the directors spoke to me and she said, there is nothing more profound than sitting knee to knee with someone and having them tell you their story. You're looking in their eyes. You are building a bond and a trust with that person. Um, because yeah, we can talk about the $31 billion in taxes. We can talk about the numbers coming across the border. We can talk about those numbers. Yes, they're significant, but when you bring it down to the individual, that is like Sherry, I was talking about with Marta, she, this mother of two and just, and her experience. And then you multiply that by the hundreds of thousands that are coming in. Each one of them has a story as do we all, that can impact another person. So I, we might talk about this in a little bit, but I run an internship for Their Story Is Our Story. And last night, I, I have a weekly call with the interns. And last night I was speaking with one of them and her family, are they are refugees. And she is a dynamo. She is in, in uh, Oregon and she's going to school. And she said that she had to present at a, political conference about refugees. So she had her presentation all ready to go and had all the stats and had all, you know, cause she's presenting it in front of political leaders. Right. And so she felt like that's what she needed. She needed to pack it with stats. And, and she said last night, she said, you know what? A day or two in advance, I got the distinct impression that's not the direction you're supposed to go. You are supposed to talk about the human aspect, the individual aspect, the story aspect. So she completely revamped her presentation. She said, I got up there and I was nervous in front of all of these political activists in Portland, or uh, I believe it was Portland. And she completely changed her the dynamic of the room. And I asked her how she thought that it went. She herself personally felt like she did an amazing job. She was so, so proud that she listened to that intuition to, to switch up her story because of working with their stories, our story and reading stories and interviews and helping edit and things like that, that they're doing in our internship. She, but I asked, so what did, what feedback did you get from that conference? And she said, it was a mixed bag. There were quite a few that thought, what, what, why is this, you know, she's in her twenties. So why is this young woman speaking to me about stories when I want to hear the percentages and the numbers and the things like that? And she said, you can't, you're not going to impact everyone, but there may have been someone with political power within that conference that I did speak to through stories. That's the most impactful thing for me is to speak with to speak with each individual and and just gain a trust with them. You know, Robin is this is um, one of the best things. I love watching Robin with the interns and they love her. They come back and they want a second turn with Robin. So we have these interns. We have a really phenomenal and unique internship program. So, you know, we talk about how knee to knee, we talk and listen to somebody's story because we think when you close that proximity between a newcomer and a local you share your stories. It's just like Anne sitting in a kitchen listening to somebody's story. She's cooking alongside of them. They're working shoulder to shoulder and, and suddenly they can talk to one another. 
Um, we have an internship program that pairs a refugee with a non-refugee, and they go through a whole pro program of training. They're empowered in writing stories, in podcasts, they're your competition, they're coming after you. <laughs> and in filmmaking, and then they work in the archive with Robin. And I mean, I'm not kidding you. It, Robin is a second. They always want a second chance to work <laughs> with Robin. Can we come back? Can we do one more internship with Robin? And um, that's because they see Robin's care in preserving and saving these stories. Because saving somebody's story is honoring them. So many of them, when you think about them living in those camps, those muddy camps, it's a mass of humanity. It, it's so hard to distinguish a single soul out of that entire wash of tents and people and, and to have their story, um, you know, just there. I, I'm going to just tell you about one of our interns. Her name is Rawa. And Rawa is, um, she was 14, year old, 14 years old in Iraq when her father was helping our military. He was an interpreter and he was an SIV. Like, so he's a, um, he, was, he was putting his life and his family's life on the line to help our military in Iraq. And um, when they had to leave, Rawa got one suitcase. Now you imagine when you're a 14 year old girl, what you're gonna stick in your suitcase. You get one suitcase. And um, it kind of brings some tears to my eyes to hear her talk about and see because she she's shown me, she quickly ripped pictures out of albums that wouldn't fit and packed them in her suitcase. Her whole suitcase was just full of pictures, her story. And um, she's come back and she's one of our interns and she interfaces with Robin all the time. Who better than Robin to honor those and understand the value of those pictures of this girl fleeing her home. And the only thing she's going to take are those memories. And so being able to work with Rawa, Rawa tells a really awesome story and she's working, um, you know, constantly with us in these internships, but it's, it's powerful. The, the, the power of that story Robin knows because she is building this archive and I would love for her to talk about the archive because it's such a big deal for us. Do you? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so we have been, so prior to me um, being brought on, the powers that be, were they connected us with um, Brigham Young University in Utah and they have donated unlimited database space for us to create this archive. It's something that they've never tackled before, this large of a project, so they are absolutely thrilled. But the intent is not only to store things, so we think of an archive as an old, dusty, dark, dank room, which I worked at the National Archives, and I can attest to, <laughs> to that. But this is going, because it's a, they're human stories, it's going to be living and breathing, and we're also going, not only, we have, oh, I should probably know the count, but I don't. We have hundreds of stories that we've done since 2016 throughout all the different trips that have been taken. All of the interviews and the photos and the video and the, the music that has been produced and the artwork, all of those things are going to be kept in this archive and very well cataloged. That's what my interns have been doing over the past year um, in the several different co cohorts that we've had. They are cataloging things. They're, they're writing keywords to make sure that 
the researcher is directed to exactly what they're looking for. And it's not only going to be housed at, B at BYU, but it's going to be free and, and open to the general public, to schools, to other universities, to anyone who is in, has interest in the refugee story. And again, like I was speaking before, not just not just the statistics, not just the percentages or the political side of it or anything, but the human side. Speaking speaking with, so let me back up. So when we do perform an interview, I, I just want to touch on our consent. Is that okay, Sherry Ann, for me to touch on that? <laughs> so consent is 100% the foundation of of who we are and what we do. Because these stories are personal, they are private, they are, these people are, a lot of them fleeing danger. They are fearing, you know, they've got family left from the countries where they are coming from, those things like that. So the the minute that we sit down, and like Sherry Ann said, you know, months after I was brought on, I was swept up into my first trip and I literally like we hopped in the car, drove to our first interview and I was handed these consent notes and they said, okay, you sit down, you have them fill these out. And it was a little shocking at first, but it allows the person to, whether they want an alias, because again, if they're in danger, their family's in danger, they may or may not want an alias attached to them. They may not, they may want to tell their story, but they may want their face blurred or or their children not shown or things like that. And so that is our prime, that is our number one thing that we do before we, we hear a word out of anyone's mouth or take a photo because these stories are so personal, so private that we have to honor every everything and every person that we speak with. And all of those are being vetted and put into the archive to be able to be used for advocacy, for research, for all, for, you know, whatever is, is needed throughout the academic and political and humanitarian world. And we're hoping, or we are going to be launching it the, during World Refugee Day, which is June 18th, 19th. And then again, we'll be doing, that's kind of a soft launch. And then again, the, the big to-do launch will be in October. And we're also bringing on several partners to be able to have them share because there are like-minded organizations throughout the world and they're going to be able to use our repository to, to store and house and grow this community. And we're thrilled about that. One of the biggest things that we do at TSOS is we have what we call community partners all over the country and all over the world. And <clears throat> These are people like us who feel um, a love for refugees. Um, and they, they may or may not have already made connections with the IRC or UNHCR or Catholic Charities, any of these organizations that take care of refugees. But by virtue of working through our platform, they're able to connect with these partners that Robin was just talking about. And there are so many partners that say, I have a stack of stories. Are, we have all these people that would love to tell their story or, I mean, all those places. And Robin has been working feverishly with BYU's um, archive to create a home, a, a, an academic repository where each of these partners has a place for their stories to go. Because, because like we said before, those stories are honoring somebody. 
And um, I've watched Robin fight to keep somebody's story super safe. Like nobody, nobody gets Robin. Nobody, if that, if that person says, I don't want to be on social media, don't even ask Robin. She will, <laughs> will physically throw herself in front of that train and say, not on my watch. Because, and we do feel that way, but it's, it's always, um, it's more important that we take care of the person than to, to tell their story. Um, somebody who knows so well, so much about that is um, the other co-deputy um, director. Her name's Liz um, Yevtek Somle. She also lives in Arizona right now. And um, Robin was talking about how this archive will be um, having its soft launch for World Refugee Day, but then will feature heavily during a large symposium. It's called the Sperry Symposium at BYU. And Liz has um, used her refugee experience. She's a refugee from Serbia, and she has pursued so many levels of education, um, a PhD, and, and efforts to understand you know, displacement of people, and she is presenting. So TSOS is going to feature very, or I'm sorry, TSOS stands for Their Story Is Our Story, um, is going to feature very heavily, and Robin's archive, I've, I've Robin's archive. <laughs> it is not my archive. <laughs> Our archive is um, is is going to be um, front and center in this symposium and and opening its doors to all of these partners that our communities bring in all of their stories and again like she said it's free it is open for curriculums for high schools to, to colleges to come in and see what are the causes what are the conflicts that create displacement what, how do we stop that. Or once they start coming, how do we welcome them? What's the best way to create that societal dividend we just talked about? That, that is all centered in that archive that, that Robin has been working so hard on. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm just gonna make a quick comment and I'm gonna turn it over to Landon so he can get his questions and or jabs in. But you know, it, it's this pales in comparison in terms of importance, but Landon and I, in our, in our business, our business is very financial statistic driven, right? And outside of maybe engineers, all of our clients learn better and feel the impact of what it is that we do for them when we share an actual real life story about the impact of not making a decision or not doing something that we recommend and what it did to that family, right? And so I, I think we fully understand the importance of telling a story and how, you know, some people do still wanna hear the statistics, but there's way greater of an impact with, with the stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well said. Earlier in the conversation, I was thinking about something uh, in relation to that, Austin, which was a lot of times when Austin and I get on a call to present something uh, to our either prospective clients or existing clients, one of the very first slides, you know, PowerPoint slides that we usually cover, we put it in the beginning of the presentation. It's called a framework for purposeful living. It's a circular infographic and it talks about, you know, time with family and it you know talks about financial stuff and it talks about volunteerism and all this you know, stuff. So we, we, we try to communicate to these people that, um, you know, the work that we are attempting to do with you is uh, much more than just, you know, managing your, you know, investments and, and stuff like that. So um, 
yeah, Austin, we're, we're certainly on the same page there as far as, you know, um, what we're, what we're gathering from these uh, wonderful ladies, but, um, you know, Robin, I, I had a question for you. Um, this archive, um, I, I can't even begin to pretend to understand the depth <laughs> and the breadth of what this thing is all about, but, uh, can you just kind of tell us like, what, what is this archive? Is it, is it online? Is there a, a brick and mortar place to physically go to? Is it, is it a combination? Like help us understand like what, what is this actual archive that you guys are building? Sure, it's through Brigham Young University's library, but it will be 100% online. So all of the, the content will be just through their portal search. So if you've ever gone to, you know, you go to a library's you know, well, they used to be physical card catalogs, but now it's, you know, obviously it's, it's an online forum, just like you would a Google search or any other platform that you needed to go to a search box. You can type because of the work that my interns have been doing there. Phenomenal. I'm going to plug them again. They are phenomenal. Um, they're producing keywords because we all know we're in the land of search engine optimization, right? So you plug in whatever, like Sherry Ann was talking about, if you want to learn about displaced people or you want to learn, learn about women, uh, you know, women in refugee crisis or whatever it might be, you can type in those words and just as if you were on Google, a whole slew of all the interview, the PDFs of interviews, all the photo, digital, digitized photos, um, audio files, video files, those will all be present within there. So it's it's within Brigham Young University's digital library, if that makes sense. Okay, gotcha. Okay, yeah, very cool, very cool. And you know, for for some people that may not be aware, um, you know, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, right, is is very much associated with with BYU. And for people maybe that are not you know, um, familiar with this part of, of the church is that they are, we are really big on family history. And so I'm, I'm curious, and I, I would assume that uh, maybe people from, uh, you know, the, the church that you go to, to, you know, your actual building and your group, your ward, I would assume that you might be that person, right? <laughs> family history expert that everybody comes to, to, I used to be. On, you know, family, <laughs> am I right? Yeah, I used to be until Austin and I now are, we um, help with service aspects throughout our organization or our uh, congregation. But, and that's, that's, I've always had a passion for history, like I said, and for the Holocaust. I was, I was working on my Holocaust um, studies master's degree years ago, and then life happened, family happened, whatnot. But um, then I became a professional genealogist and that is, and nowadays, you know, like I was saying, old card catalogs or, or, you know, old dusty rooms. Now the, a good chunk can be done online. And so it's, it's connecting family, connecting that story through documentation. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here with uh, their stories. Our story is connecting the human aspect through the documentation that we have gathered. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, uh, at some point in the future, we would love to 
reconnect with you ladies and we'd like to get one of the maybe one of the immigrants or refugees that you guys have gotten to know over the years that maybe has has started a business we'd like to you know circle back with you on that and love to have maybe one of them come on the show and we can kind of you know uh plug all this together so um yeah we'll we'll circle back with you on that but i think that would be that would be uh really cool so yeah, as we, we start to kind of press up on time here, uh, you ladies have made our job uh, very easy today, which we we thank you for because uh, these are always the best interviews when when you guys spend, you know, we want you we want you spending, you know, 75, 80, 90 percent of the time doing the talking because that's exactly, you know, why we, we have you here. But so we've got about, you know, call it eight to 10 minutes left. You know what? what should we be talking about for the next 10 minutes? You know, what, what's something that maybe we have not talked about that's really important in regards to your guys's, you know, uh, you know, mission and vision of your organization so that uh, we just want to make sure that we, we touch on something maybe we, we have not talked about yet. So Lance, if you don't mind, I might throw in here that our stories, even though we talk so much about the story part, we do have a vision for these stories that are not just, to you know, own the stories or have the stories, even though having an archive is so important, the stories have to change something. You know, the stories have to be there. We say our tagline is to change the perception and reception of refugees. From the beginning of TSOS, of, of their story is our story, when Melissa Dalton Bradford and Trisha Limer were sitting knee to knee in high schools with Syrian refugees coming in, there was always this desire to make changes. We, we have to change the way we welcome them. We have to make changes so that that society will, will benefit from the societal dividend. So the stories, if you go to our website, you'll see that we have divisions. There are stories that educate. We have a curriculum, a free curriculum for elementary schools and for high schools and middle schools to be used in addition to the internship program that we have. We have an advocacy branch. Um, right now we've got, we're working on advocacy in areas of mental health and housing, but that will, that will change as the needs are changing um, from year to year. So you'll see our community programs working hand in hand with state and federal legislators to promote um, best practices when it comes to welcoming people and, and how, how do you help them contribute to an economy. And then, you know, we have these stories of integration where we find out how to become an ally. You know, when you see somebody struggling with um, a pay voucher in a grocery store and they don't speak the language, what do you do? Do you walk past them or do you offer to help them? Do you walk them through the cashier process and kindly help them through the door? Or do you say, this isn't my problem and walk away? These stories that we tell are to help us see the better way to, to re respond and to see how um, other people have responded. Because I'm not going to even pretend that I've always done it the right way. On so many levels, I've done it the wrong way. But I'm learning by reading and hearing stories how to do it better. And, and that's, that's the purpose of our stories. So we do, we do have you know, very specific purposes for our stories that go beyond just gathering and telling stories. Um, you know, they, they do come to these very specific goals 
and objectives that we're trying to achieve. Robin, you got any, any closing thoughts for us? We'd love to hear them. <laughs> well, Austin, how were those donuts that I brought home the other day? Well, I'll let you answer and then I'll tell you where they were from. <laughs> I was waiting for Landon to jump in and say, well, he clearly ate them. I can see it you know, <laughs> on the rolls in his neck or something, but no, they were great. I, you know, I, I, my understanding was that they were homemade donuts. And so I asked and, and the response was, no, they actually own a donut shop and they produce these, you know, on a commercial basis. So, so yeah, they were where great. that came from. So I was volunteering on Saturday at Gathering Humanity. I've talked about them multiple times, but all of a sudden this man drives up and he's, and he says, everyone take donuts this cute little man, retired dentist who decided I'm just going to volunteer all over the world. I'm going to do things. So he went, he lives in the West Valley. And so about an hour away from where we were, there is apparently this cute little Cambodian refugee woman who owns a donut shop. And she not only obviously sells them to the public, but she gave him boxes and boxes and boxes full because he was going to the welcome center, which is the international rescue commission's center that is welcoming the asylum seekers that are coming into Phoenix from, um, from Mexico, from South America. So not only, I mean, this is kind of where the, this full circle thing comes in. She herself was a refugee. She was able to, She's living her quote unquote American dream. She was able to set up a business, but now she's paying, she's giving back and she's helping these others that are just starting out on their journey here. I just kind of paused for a moment. You know, yeah, I took some to bring home for Austin and my son and, and our son. And, but I had to sit and think for a second, this woman, this is what we do. This is why we do what we do because of just one, this one woman. And I just, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, when, when you've seen blessings in your life, like a full head of hair, you really <laughs> might think about sharing with others that don't have a full head of hair. <laughs> uh, I like it. We, we kept our, we kept our, uh, jab uh, at a minimum, which, uh, that, that was tough, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't, I, I've been oh, saving one. Some- some listenership because of it. <laughs> we might, you know, I, I've been saving in my back pocket, which I, I'm going to leave for now because uh, I don't want to take away from the uh, importance of this uh, discussion. But what one of my big takeaways from this conversation was, and full disclosure, I have not been on your website. I have not looked at any of these stories or anything like that. We all think that we, you know, have you know, problems and issues. And, and we do, and they're real to all of us. I'm not trying to minimize that, but <clears throat> I would imagine when you, when you listen to some of these people's stories, the problems and the issues that we have in our lives just shrink, shrink down to maybe close, close, close to nothing. You know, I, I grew up in, in San Diego in a beautiful home and a, you know, beautiful neighborhood and, you know, great neighbors and great school and all that. But, um, I also, uh, spent, you know, um, you know, probably half a dozen to a dozen trips. And we went down into, uh, you know, into Mexico, into, you know, the Tijuana, you know, area, 
and uh, we did some volunteering, you know, um, down in that, you know, uh, down in, uh, in in Tijuana, and it you really you really see real struggles that people have, and I would imagine that you know hearing some of these stories and seeing the pictures and and all the all the stuff that you're doing to package these stories together, I can just imagine that it has a, such a powerful impact. And I would encourage anybody that is listening to this episode, you know, let's, including myself, let's go onto that website. Let's listen to some of these stories because we're going to feel the importance of the work that you guys are doing. So uh, I just think it's just wonderful, you know, that you guys are doing what you're doing. So Thank you. Thank you for, for the work that you're doing. Thanks for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. Go ahead, Cherianne. Okay, it's tsosrefugees.org. You can help us by reading the stories. If you've got friends who are refugees, if you don't have friends who are refugees or asylum seekers or newcomers, go make some friends who are newcomers. You will encounter them all over the place, whether it's in a restaurant or a hotel or an Uber driver or, and whether or not they're refugee or not, just, you know, when I was coming home from the trip that I was on with Robin, I'm used to asking people stories, but I was going home and I needed to get to the airport and I was in an Uber and the driver didn't speak English very well. He picked me up at a mosque because I was interviewing at a mosque and he asked me, what kind of music is this? And I said, this is, this is classics fifties. This is what, you know, it was the Beach Boys. And he says, oh, he says, I like it. And I said, yeah, it's good music. He said, this is also music I like. And he turned the radio station to, to religious Muslim music. And, you know, he was sharing something with me. He was sharing a part of his story with me and it was beautiful music. Um, I'm, I would ask people to ask those questions. Tell me about your favorite music. Share with me your favorite food. Close that proximity and listen to somebody's story. It will make all the difference in your life. Great. Well, thank you so much to both of you for being on the program. We really appreciate what you're doing for the refugee and asylum seeker communities. And, uh, and we appreciate you coming on and, and telling your story uh, here on Tycoons of Small Biz. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.